Nation Impact is a unique radio program broadcast in English from Paris and studio from FSGU representing the Jewish Civil Society in France. This is a bi-monthly radio broadcast. Uh, is a mixture of great one-on-one -on -one intimate interviews, highly personalized thought exchanges and discussions with a guest selection, reading and music for discovery and more. And uh, I'll be happy to receive relevant international who's who personalities of the Jewish world and non-Jewish world at the global and local dimension. This Nation Impact Radio, this is George Hazan welcoming you. I love Paris in the springtime. I love Paris in the fall. I love Paris in the winter when it drizzles. I love Paris in the summer when it sizzles. I love Paris every moment. Every moment of the year. I love Paris. Why, why do I love Paris? Because my love is here. I'm sitting here with Larry Hogberg. Larry Hogberg is the founder and also the president of the Friends of Elnet and the Elnet organization. If I do remember quite a while ago, uh, Larry, what was the genesis of the Elnet organization and also the purpose of it? Well, it's about 15 years old. The feeling was that pro-Israel activity was only going on in the United States, nothing in Europe. And people felt Europe is lost, they're all anti-Semites. We didn't think so. We thought Europe would be more important going forward. It's the largest trading partner of Israel. And the way things have turned out now, we have offices in all major cities in Europe. and. Uh, Israel and Europe, now it's more convivial. Europe needs Israel as much as Israel needs Europe. Israel has a lot to offer, and Europe understands that now, with the war in Ukraine and the Iranians carrying on the way they are, um, the importance of Elnet is more visible than ever. So we've been successful, and um, the supporters we have are very serious, and uh, we're running this program now in uh, Paris, which is uh, tended by about 400 people, and it's a real success. So that would be my message. Those of you who are in Europe, uh, who are pro-Israel, should find one of our offices. Our website is www.lnetwork.eu. Larry, um, just um, with the environment that we are actually uh, experiencing, uh, of course, this is a general question, but what is your feeling uh, after what we see in uh, Israel unfolding, but also in the United States? What do you think the uh, relationship will be in the near term 
between United States, Europe, and Israel as it unfolds today. Well, some say that the United States is disengaging from the Middle East. I'm not so sure that's true in the long term because they see now the results of that uh, moves that the U.S. has made, although the U.S. can't control the whole world either. Uh, and Europe becomes more important, more important for its own security, its own defense. But it needs the U.S., as does Israel need the U.S. But U.S. needs its allies as well. So I, I'm optimistic that these are free countries and they will persevere providing they can prioritize their efforts into things that will be productive and not kill themselves in the internal dissent. Thank you very much for your uh, intake, uh, Larry. Always good to see you in Paris uh, this month of May. Um, and this is a piece in memoriam to Newt Becker, our common friend. Newt Becker, without him, I'm not sure we would have started this and uh, therefore wouldn't be where we are. So he is a great fellow. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Larry. who is actually the executive director and the organizer of this EIPC uh, forum in uh, Paris, uh, regrouping over 500 people from all over the world who are basically pro-Israel uh, activists. Uh, Arie, um, what is the intake today of the uh, relationship between Europe and Israel? and including, of course, the United States. Uh, as you know, uh, George Elnet is an organization uh, devoted to strengthen relations between European countries and Israel, but it's also an international organization because we are partnering with uh, our friends in the United States. We have also an office in the UK, for sure in Israel, and working more and more with uh, different places in the Arab world and uh, with the countries that are signatories of the Abraham Accord. So, the, the fact is that for us today, uh, Europe is a key arena when it's come to the relation with Israel and with the Middle East. And we think that it's at the benefit of Europe and the Middle East to partner, to strengthen relation and to develop strong cooperation. By the way, Abraham Accord is about that. And we think that the European don't just need to be supporting the Abraham Accord. They need to be part of it because it's a, a, a new paradigm to try to solve the global crisis we are confronted all together. And when you have uh, in front of you a, a global issue, you have to, to deal with global solution. And there will not be global solution without the European and the Middle East, and also because we are in a competition between the great powers in the world. Mm -hmm. China on one side, United States on the other side. So what about Europe? Europe is the most important, perhaps the greatest power in the world. But when it's come to economy, not today, it's when it's come to strategic issues and defense capability. That means that if we want to be part of the global gain in the coming years, we, the Europeans, has to partner with the Israelis, with the, 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 the countries of the MENA, Middle East and North Africa, around Mediterranean, to become a big power that will have this capability to face China and Russia 
and to, to, to develop our own uh, vi strategic vision for the future. Do you see uh, Europe as it stands? And of course, we see a lot of forces, antagonistic forces for the last few years coming from uh, big powers, China versus the United States. But do you see that Europe is the weak link uh, on the global strategy that uh, we can really enforce and really threaten? I will not say the weak link, but I will say it's, uh, as I said, by the way, I will say it in another way. Uh, Europe is a big power that ignore itself. That means they should understand the potential that we, the European, have. We are the first economy of the world. What does it mean to be the first economy of the world? That means that we should have the means to defend our values and our model of society, which we don't have at this time. We still rely on Americans to ensure our security. So I think it's time, because of the war that was declared by the Russian against the, the, the Ukrainian, it's time to, to be responsible and to understand that the, uh, after the Second World War, we decided to be in a, in a, in a model, in a, in, a, in a structure of economic cooperation. But, and we said, we have peace. That's, that's true. Mm -hmm. Between European countries, mm -hmm. we, we are in peace. We have peace. But the world is at war. And where are we when the world is at war? We should be our, at our place. means that we should invest in the defense of our values, our population, our economy. And it will, it will not be possible without great cooperation with other countries that are not European countries, but that could bring an added value that uh, are needed uh, also to develop Europe and to, 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 to create a, 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 a more balanced uh, equilibrium, you say like that, equilibrium, uh, equilibrium among, the, among the big Balance. powers. Yeah. So it's time for Europe to be a big power. Thank you very much, uh, Arie, and see you next year. Wonderful. Thank you. is uh, the president of the Abraham Accords Institute, uh, probably one of the uh, uh, main craftsmen of the not only the Accords, but he is pursuing this process very diligently. Uh, Robert, what was actually uh, your insights, but also the uh, views uh, during the past year since we spoke? Well, it's always good to see you, and it's great to be talking with you about the Accords. I'd say in the past year, there have been two major developments, or at least two major observations that we captured in our annual report. The first is that the ties endure, that the relationships made between the individual countries of the Accords have weathered the test and are expanding. And they're expanding in a number of market ways. There have been a number of diplomatic engagements over the past year, but I think more remarkable than that is the economic ties that have expanded. 
And I think this is consistent with the vision of the individual countries and their leaders. And one of the major reasons they joined the Accords was to see the benefits of economic integration. And we are starting to see certainly market increases in trade between the countries. And in my judgment, this is a relationship that will endure further and it's a relationship that they'll protect and defend. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that support for normalization with Israel within the broader Middle East and North Africa has still maintained uh, a decline since the accords were signed. And that lack of popular support, I think, needs to be addressed. It's something we want to study more closely. And it's something that we can't say with certainty, but it's been a consistent trend observed based on the information that we have. Now, I think there's lots of reasons for it, um, not least of which I think is uh, this, the, the, the broader dynamics that are occurring uh, in the world and in, within the region, not just the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact on global food markets, but also I think the policies uh, the United States are pursuing relative to Iran and relative to the rest of the countries in the Accords in China. With the emphasis on the economic aspect, of course, there's a political one, but do you see more, I would say, nations uh, joining the efforts and joining the club? Well, certainly that's our hope. We're working to do exactly that. Um, and I do think that there's a strong potential for some countries to join the Accords within the next year. Um, but uh, I also think that there's significant headwinds. There's also uh, a, a number of different impediments that have to be addressed. And one of the most important is the security within the region. And one of the things that the region has come to expect is that the United States will support its partners and allies in the region. And that if they take additional risk and normalize diplomatic relations with Israel, that the United States will uh, safeguard them, will help provide them the tools and capabilities. And I think there's some doubt about that. And I think that doubt creates hesitancy. That hesitancy creates reluctance and that may delay decisions. Um, but in any case, I think there are some countries that are closer than others, and are, we're hopeful that certainly we'll be able to add additional countries. Is this effort in the United States bipartisan? There's no question that the Accords maintain bipartisan support within the United States, but here in Europe where we're speaking and within the region, uh, we have found consistent support across the political spectrum for the Abraham Accords. I think everyone still approaches it differently in terms of what next and how it can be leveraged and how it can be expanded. There are many that want to see it um, brought to bear to help resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict, and there are those that believe that that too will come in time, but we need to stabilize the current relationship and expand it further. And I think both are true, and I think both warrant attention. But uh, there has been broad support across the political spectrum for the Accords, which is a good thing. But now I think we need to translate that support into tangible actions, concrete, specific things that parties outside can, in fact, undertake. If you like peace, you should do something about this. You should support it and sustain it if you want to see it again. If you don't, you're not likely to. Thank you very much, uh, Bob, about this uh, insight and uh, best wishes into your efforts. Likewise. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Michael Oren, the former ambassador from Israel to the uh, United States, thank you very much for taking the time in Paris to talk about a new baby a new uh, book. I would say um, it's a pleasure to be with you, but what's in the book today? It's a good pleasure to be with you, George. Again, we spoke about, about a decade ago, so here is what's happened. 
Uh, during that time, I concluded my term as ambassador. I came back, I ran for Knesset, I served in Knesset for years. And in Knesset, I was also appointed as the deputy minister to the prime minister in charge of diplomacy. And uh, it was in that capacity that one night I had a conversation with the prime minister, this is Netanyahu, uh, about moaning the fact that we are always so bogged down in our current crises, we never get a chance to talk about our future. And why don't we have a study that will look at Israel on its 100th birthday from every aspect, social policy, educational policy, foreign policy, peace process, Israel diaspora. Um, and the Prime Minister got very excited about it. We began to formulate the study, but before we really got off the ground, the government fell. Whereupon uh, I moved it in with my uh, good friend Natan Sharansky into the Hartman Institute, where we conducted uh, a year of discussions with wonderful uh, participants uh, on the future of Israel, and then Corona hit. And during the period of Corona, I sat down and actually wrote the book. The book is called Israel 2048, The Rejuvenated State. Uh, in Hebrew, Eslim Ali Mishmone, Amedina Yehudit. It also appears in Arabic. Why 100 years and not 120 years, like we say in the swing of song? Let's start with 100, then maybe we'll get to 120. <laughs> I made two vows in writing this book. One would be that I would uh, not shy away from any topic, no matter how controversial, how uh, flammable, and that I would be very policy oriented. I'll be very driven by what kind of recommendations we could make that would actually enable us to uh, address and surmount some of these very difficult uh, challenges that Israel will face, facing now and facing in the future. Uh, and it's interesting, Jos, that uh, one of the chapters deals with the need to reform the Supreme Court and the judicial system. And I wrote it three years ago. And believe it or not, same issues. How Supreme Court judges are chosen, what is the scope of the Supreme Court, how to limit the scope of the Supreme Court, and I made recommendations for reforming the Supreme Court. Um, but I also deal with issues such as the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. Uh, a major section deals with Bedouin, Bedouin issues, um, and, uh, and with the peace process. Probably the longest section deals with the Palestinians. Uh, these are all issues that if we don't address them now, now, in a very serious way, um, then we will have difficulty not only get, you know, surpassing our 20 to 100th birthday, but getting to our 100th birthday. So in a way, you're a whistleblower in a sense where you see things ahead of what we see currently today unfolding, what is, what is really, in your view and your insights, you know, the, the future of Israel, uh, you know, going into the 2048? Well, the future of Israel right now would be, would be sort of clouded in, in doubt if we do not succeed in discussing these issues and doing something about them. And this is one of the great strengths of Zionism. Uh, between the 1880s and the 1940s, uh, the Jewish people engaged in a very dynamic discussion about the future of the state. Was it going to be a secular state, a religious state, a western state, an eastern state, a democracy or an autocracy, uh, secular, religious? And those discussions proved to be absolutely crucial in determining the, the first of all, the emergence of the state and the survival of the state. Um, and we need to have those discussions right now uh, from people who agree and disagree. Uh, the purpose of my book was not to convince anybody of my arguments. My purpose the, of, my, of my book was to engage people and get them involved in the argument, particularly young people, because uh, it's going to be their state and their children's state in 2048. Um, it's some of the issues now are coming to the fore. Yes, uh, Supreme Court uh, reform is in the form, and it was clear that that was not a sustainable issue when I addressed it three, four years ago. Uh, but other issues are becoming increasingly prominent in Israeli discourse. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, uh, can they uh, enter the workforce, which is really, to me, a much bigger issue than whether they'll enter the army or not. 
and they actually support the economy. And right now, with uh, young ultra-Orthodox children getting a second grade education in math and English, they cannot support the economy. And when they are 30%, 40% of the population, the state will not be sustainable. Simple as that. This is nothing to say against the Haredi, a great respect for their way of life. But it's is, the, is, is the book addressing some of these solutions? All of them. All of them. And uh, you know, may I will agree with my solutions. Um, Palestinian issue, complex. I, uh, well before I was ambassador, I was advisor uh, to Israeli governments. I, I've been involved in the peace process since 1993, since Oslo. And I've come away with some very, I think, um, far-reaching and profound conclusions about that peace process and where it can go. Um, and some of these conclusions are, can be very controversial. Uh, it's interesting that for many people in Israeli politics, some of my most controversial uh, conclusions have to do with Israel-Diaspora relations. And I'm, here, so. and I'm here at this conference, and you'll be hearing, I'm giving the keynote address tomorrow night, mm -hmm. you'll be hearing some of these uh, conclusions. Well, we've had Israeli politicians, and their names will not go mentioned, coming here to France and saying that all French Jews should move to Israel. Remember that one? Absolutely. Okay. We've had, uh, we've had many Israeli politicians say that they will not recognize uh, the different branches of Judaism, particularly in the United States, Reform Conservative Judaism. Uh, just hear what I have to say about that. Uh, as far as my, my, my fundamental assumption is that Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people. And as the Jewish people, no matter where they live, how they practice they or are. choose not to try to practice their Judaism. We are a nation say the Jewish people. And I think it's about time we start living up to it. Michael, thank you very much for those um, uh, precious uh, insights as we speak. And uh, best wishes in your efforts thank you. in thank advancing you the, the issues. the great pleasure to sit in Jerusalem with uh, Professor Erwin Kotler, uh, with a great um, 
background of um, the human rights, but also justice, and justice, I would say, Tzedek Tzedek, Tzedroth. We want to tackle a couple of issues that are now currently, you know, occupying our minds. Erwin, what is the situation in Europe unfolding as we speak regarding Ukraine and Russia? Well, you know, we're meeting another historical inflection moment. We're witnessing a resurgent global authoritarianism, backsliding of democracies, assaults, as you mentioned, on human rights, international legal order, political prisoners are looking glass, and a dramatic case study of all of that uh, is the uh, Russian uh, aggression in Ukraine, which has been attended as well by mass atrocities, including war crimes, crimes against uh, humanity, and even mass atrocities that are constituted of genocide. I don't use that term easily, but, but what has been happening has been horrific. And so I'm part of a group that has been uh, rec- recommending the establishment of an independent international tribunal for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. There's no jurisdictional presence in any forum at this point for that purpose. So we've mobilized internationally in the hope of establishing such a tribunal to secure justice for the victims, for the Ukrainian people, and accountability for the human rights violators, mainly the military and political leaders of Putin's Russia. Uh, Let's move to a different geography in the Middle East, which is not really uh, that far from uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. The Iranian situation is also preoccupying and really is um, asking us to be vigilant but also to be prudent. What would be the approach but also your assessment of the situation today? Well, you know, Iran represents a unique combination of threats, a, a nuclear threat, a terrorist threat, a hegemonic threat, an incitement threat, and in particular, the massive domestic repression of its own people. Uh, led by, in protest now by uh, the women's movement, whose motto has been uh, life, freedom, liberty. These are the things that are animating the protest. So there's two sides now. You have the massive repression by the Iranian government, but you're seeing incredible heroism and bravery by the Iranian people. And this connects to the other uh, topic we discussed because Iran is also complicit in Russia's uh, criminal invasion of Ukraine, supplying them with uh, weaponry and and the like. So if we want to combat the resurgent global authoritarianism, then the two leading authoritarian repressors are Russia and Iran. This requires the community of democracies to mobilize in in concert. I am happy at least that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine finally served as a wake-up call for the international community for standing as a bystander community in Russia. In Chechnya, we did nothing. When it uh, invaded Georgia, we did nothing. When it seized the Crimea, we did nothing. When it was in, got involved in atrocities, so we did nothing. Therefore, Putin probably felt, well, I did all these things. International community didn't do anything. Why should they care if I go into Ukraine, which belongs to me anyway, and there's no independent people, etc. Finally, the w- world woke up and I'm hoping this is going to be a mobilizing moment for the community of democracies to combat the resurgent global authoritarianism as a whole. Uh, the situation, the political situation is also in turmoil in Israel. And uh, your um, stay here not only uh, is witnessing 
a lot of upheavals from the civil society, but also from the political streams. What is your intake on that? Well, regrettably, I've rarely seen uh, Israeli society so divided, uh, the discourse so uh, toxic, uh, the mutual uh, incriminations um, so painful. Uh, what you have here is the government uh, setting forth a set of reforms, judicial reforms. Very few are saying we don't need reform, but the nature, the package of reforms, and the manner in which it uh, proposed is number one, uh, undermining the independence of the uh, judiciary, eroding uh, the authority even of the uh, Supreme Court to engage in judicial review. These uh, reforms will pass, it'll basically eviscerate uh, a judicial uh, review. The politicization of the judicial appointments process, the politicization of the legal ad ad advisory uh, ad groups, the elimination of the principle of reason. I can go on. The main concerns here are the reforms taken as a whole are going to undermine the rule of law, abuse the separation of powers and checks and, and balances, diminish the protection of, of, of human rights, and harm Israel You know, in terms of its democratic traditions and institutions. So I'm hoping this goes to process, that we will have an engaged process, and not one that seeks to ram through the reforms, but an engaged process in Canada, when we developed a Charter of Rights and Freedoms and had our constitutional revolution back in 1980, we had two years of hearings before a joint House-Senate Committee on the Constitution. We had involvement of multiple uh, civil society groups, and I'll never forget the then Prime Minister of the time, uh, Pierre Trudeau, said, this process started with a Trudeau Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's ended up with the People's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is a people's constitutional reform. That's what we need here in Israel, the coming together a people's constitutional reform. Thank you very much, Professor, for this uh, mindful thoughts and uh, looking forward to pursuing this conversation. Thanks, George. Always a pleasure. Please do search Nation Impact, the bi-monthly program broadcast from France Capitals, our recording studios in Paris, radiosaj.info website, or log in at the Apple and Android applications under SAJFSJU. My name is George Hazan. <laughs>